Due to the graphic nature of this cult's crimes, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes discussions of physical and sexual abuse, including abuse of minors that some people may find disturbing. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. In 2008, a high-end go-kart salesman in Wisconsin named Bob Cameron desperately needed money. A mysterious religious group called the Samantha Roy Institute of Science and Technology, known as CIST, had purchased carts from him several years before. But according to Cameron, they stiffed him out of $100,000 and seemed to have no intention of paying off their debt. However, that year Cameron learned that CIST was desperate to make more money themselves. Cameron sensed an opportunity. He suggested to the group that he had mafia connections because his wife was Italian. He could help them get in touch, if they gave him something in return. Sist was impressed by Cameron's tall tale. So impressed, they quickly escalated the conversation. They asked Cameron if he and his mafia connections could take care of their, quote, political problems in the nearby small town of Shawno. Cameron wasn't sure what they meant, but they had offered to pay him. He sensed the perfect opportunity to get his money back and falsely agreed to their request. Towards the end of October, $175,000 appeared in Cameron's bank account. Minutes later, he received a fax. Both were from CIST. The paper showed a list of 60 names. It included Shano's mayor, the city attorney, the police chief, and anyone else who'd resisted CIST. The top of the list said Red Rum, which Cameron interpreted to mean murder. The contact then told Cameron that they'd help him secure guns for the job. With this, Cameron realized the gravity of the situation. He'd gotten involved with a group of fanatics who just declared war on Shawno, Wisconsin. Hi, I'm Greg Polson. And I'm Vanessa Richardson. And this is Cults a Spotify original from ParCast. Every Tuesday, we look at a cult's practices, their leader, and their followers. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from ParCast for free on Spotify. Today, we're continuing our deep dive into the Samantha Roy Institute of Science and Technology and its authoritarian leader, Ramachandra Samantha Roy. Last time we saw how he rose from humble beginnings in India, amassed a following in northern Wisconsin, and stepped on his disciples to attain whatever he wanted. This week, we'll explore how he attempted to take over the town of Shano and the scandals that eventually led to his downfall. We have all that and more coming up. Stay with us. Sometimes a leader's greatest asset is their confidence and charisma. People are drawn to them and are willing to follow them wherever they go. It allows those leaders to collect vast amounts of wealth, power, and influence. Yet that self-assurance has a dark side. A leader might endlessly pursue their goals until they overreach, destroying themselves and their organization in the process. Throughout the mid-1970s and 80s, Ramachandra Samantha Roy amassed a following estimated to be between a few hundred and 3,000 people. They were drawn to his powerful messages that blended Old Testament Christianity and Judaism, as well as his supposed healing powers. 
Every weekend, followers would gather on his property near the small town of Shawno, Wisconsin. He lived there with his wife, Julaine, and their children. Rama commanded absolute authority over his followers. He determined what groceries they bought, what cars they drove, and even, according to one former member, what sex positions were permissible. If that weren't enough, by the 1990s, Rama's teachings had also become deeply prejudiced. He openly spoke out against Catholics. He believed the Catholic Church was somehow responsible for multiple modern tragedies, including the Holocaust. According to the Southern Poverty Law Center, Rama and his group believed that the officials of Shano were part of an anti-Jewish, neo-Nazi, pro-Catholic conspiracy. The sect claimed that people hated Rama because he was a successful immigrant from India and identified as Jewish. Even in the face of this allegedly powerful position, Rama seemed determined to keep pushing forward. He changed his name to Samantha Roy in 1990, and by 1996, the middle-aged minister had started a nonprofit designed to spread his teaching all over the world. He called it the Samantha Roy Institute of Science and Technology, otherwise known as SIST. Rama, who would later take on another name, stated that he established SIST to bring a new method of education to India and the U.S. He didn't publicly share much about the school or his plans beyond that. Rama didn't trust the media because he believed they portrayed him unfairly, and his intentions never leaked because his disciples didn't interact with locals in Shano. Despite the group's rapid growth, the townspeople and the group mostly left each other alone. But whatever peace they had came undone in 2002. That year, a former member of CIST was convicted of sexually assaulting his teenage daughter. This man had been involved in the group for over two decades. However, according to a video interview with him, Rama had taken over and bankrupt his once successful business. Sometime after this, the man decided to abandon the group that many had called a cult. In court, the man claimed that the years under Rama's abuse had inhibited his ability to think and behave ethically. His defense attorney brought in several other ex-members of the group to back up his claim. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, these witnesses spoke about various forms of child abuse in the sect, including beating children with wooden boards and sticks, jolting them with cattle prods, and making them eat their own vomit. Parents in the group were also allegedly encouraged to act abusively to their own children. Vanessa's going to take over in the psychology here and throughout the episode. Please note, Vanessa is not a licensed psychologist or psychiatrist, but we have done a lot of research for this show. Thanks, Greg. Creating emotional distance between children and their parents was just one of Rama's methods for tightening his grip on individuals while also driving members of the group further apart. According to an article on the abuse of women in cults by Alexandra Stain, this is a common practice in groups like CIST. Stain wrote, quote, Not all groups interfere so directly with parent-child attachment, but all will keep members extremely busy so that mothers have little time to give the kind of attention to their children that they otherwise might. Stain explained that the overarching goal of any cult is to, quote, Focus all feelings of attachment on the leader or group and on them alone. One former member of CIST, Elina Lane, offered her own stories of abuse in a series of video interviews. She said that Rama hated when people interrupted his sermons, which could last up to 12 hours. Because of that, no one could use the restroom. 
That meant listeners, including the adults, often wet themselves. Elina stated that when she was a child of around five years old, she violated Rama's rule and asked a friend when Rama's message would be over. Unfortunately, Rama noticed. Once he finished speaking, he told Elina to wait for him in another room. When he entered, he held an electric cattle prod in his hand. Then he proceeded to shock Elina under her arms, mouth, and between her legs. Elina also revealed that sometimes physical punishment wasn't enough for Rama. She said he often tormented the children psychologically by putting them in solitary confinement for up to two days. He'd place them in barrels and seal the lid with no food, water, and only minimal air. Elina said she was put in one several times. She could do nothing but whimper, cry, and wonder what she did wrong. At one point, she felt so starved that she ate her own feces. If a barrel wasn't enough, Elina said that Rama had the children placed in a 10 to 15 foot ditch in the ground. He'd leave them there to endure the elements, regardless of the time of year. Elina also said that when she asked her parents about the abuse later on, they claimed they didn't know about it. Rama sent them off to work while he dealt with their kids. But Elina believed they were aware of the torture and just didn't intervene. On at least one occasion, Elina's father saw her backside covered in bruises when they bathed her. It's likely that her parents never acted out of fear of what Rama might do to their children. Another former member testified about the group's abuse. William Eilers, the man who was kidnapped alongside his wife by culty programmers, finally left the sect and realized that he'd lost his autonomy to cyst. In a statement reported by the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, he said that while he was in the group, quote, I never went to town, I never saw a woman, never got a hug, never talked to people, unless I was instructed to. All these testimonies made a strong case that Rama abused his followers, and that abuse may have caused a former follower to assault his own daughter. But the statute of limitations had passed for the abuses that these witnesses alleged. And in the former member's case, these shocking tales weren't enough for the jury. He was found guilty. There are no reports about Rama's reaction to this conviction or the accusations of abuse, but the horror stories about Rama must have sent shockwaves through the community. Locals had heard whispers of Rama's strict disciplinarianism, but that's likely as far as it went. After the abuse trial, however, Rama and Sist were seen in a much more disturbing light. But it seems the bad press and the trial were minor speed bumps on Rama's road to more power. In the following months, Rama used his vast wealth, accumulated from his followers' donations, and bought several properties in Shano. By April 2003, the 63-year-old had the group purchase 24 more businesses, including apartment buildings, hotels, several gas stations, and 20 pieces of commercial property. Despite the staggering bills and taxes they'd have to pay, it appears as if CIST was well-equipped to handle the cost. That year, CIST had revenue of $2.2 million and assets worth $3.6 million. According to CIST, the profits from the businesses would go to their school, but in those seven years since announcing the plan, they hadn't even broken ground. Locals wondered why Rama didn't just build the school with all the money they were using to buy properties. But Sist never appeared to explain their actions and only seemed determined to further their incursion into town. 
In the summer of 2004, they announced plans to open up a new center, a fabric store, and a home furnishing store in the downtown area. But it seems that none of those ever came to fruition. Sist likely had their focus set on something else. That same year, they made their biggest purchase ever. Coming up, Rama continues his takeover of Shano. Since the beginning of time, people have wanted to believe in an afterlife. Hi listeners, I'm Shelby Scott. In Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast, I take a closer look at the mortal lives of spiritualists who claim to communicate with the dead and the scientists who tried to debunk them. This eight-episode series looks at paranormal events proven to be hoaxes and those which have mystified even the world's greatest skeptics. Mixing history, mystery, and social psychology, Mediums asks how these self-proclaimed psychics pulled off the illusion of interacting with the dead, even under a microscope of criticism. Were they all simply peddling parlor tricks, or was there something truly paranormal going on? Break out your Ouija board, dust off your crystal ball, or light some candles, because Parcast is ready to reveal what's really known about the unknown. Follow the Spotify original from Parcast, Mediums. Summon new episodes every Wednesday, free and only on Spotify. Now back to the story. Samantha Roy experienced a great deal of success from the late 90s to the mid-2000s. His organization, the Samantha Roy Institute of Science and Technology, had millions of dollars worth of assets in the town of Shawano, Wisconsin, and there seemed to be no end to their spending. But over time, more and more of his ex-followers began to speak out against his iron-fisted rule. Their accounts threatened to weaken Rama's empire. Despite those setbacks, Rama had a long way to go before he'd admit failure. In 2004, the 65-year-old had Sist make its biggest purchase ever, a multi-million dollar go-kart racetrack. Rama had all of his followers, including children as young as six years old, to help build the track, just as they'd done with his home decades before. First, he ordered a crew of adults and kids to clear 15 acres of debris and lay down sod. The team worked so hard that it only took them four days to complete the work. After everyone cleared the field, they built the track. They made it a mile long, 30 feet wide, and capable of supporting motorcycles and race cars as well. When they finished the ambitious project, they had one of the most versatile tracks in the country. It was so good that they claimed they were even sanctioned to hold races by the World Karting Association, the largest league for go-karts in North America. A representative of SIS told the local press that their track would benefit everyone in Shawano. He boasted that they'd host national and international events. During racing season, local hotels, restaurants, and shops would be filled with tourists. And when they weren't hosting races, the track could cater to corporate events and other activities. But even with all those plans underway, it still wasn't enough for Rama. Sist bought an amusement park right next to the racetrack, and they also hired an architect from Belgium. They had him draw plans for a two-story, 40,000-square-foot shopping center that would wrap around the racetrack. After that, they planned on building a water park. 
As Shano residents watched this happen, they weren't sure of Rama's true goals, and it made them uneasy. Given the past claims of child abuse, locals likely worried about what Rama could be planning. This left residents to speculate about Rama's goals. Shano residents did not know what he wanted. They only knew they were a small town of 9,000 people, and Rama's group seemed to be buying up all the property in town. In a worst-case scenario, they might wake up one day and find their town completely overrun by cyst. Whatever Rama's intentions were, they were put on hold in late 2004. Wisconsin state law mandated a minimum amount stations could charge for fuel. Apparently, the gas stations owned by CIST were undercharging, and a competing gas station owner issued a complaint. In response, CIST received a warning letter. While that would cause most businesses to think twice, it didn't slow CIST down. They continued with their illegal practices. But before the state intervened, a group of rival gas station owners banded together and sued. In December 2004, they won their case and a judge awarded them $12,000 plus damages. By 2008, many of CIS's other investments started to take a hit. According to the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, revenue at the Cult's hotel started to fall between 2006 and 2008 by 54% while their competitors rose by 11%. And Rama's personal life seemed even worse. In 2007, his daughter Deborah Roy passed away from cancer at 37 years old. She'd lived in Baltimore, Maryland, and left her house to her parents in her will. At some point, Rama began living there as his primary residence, and then traveled to his property in Shano to speak to his followers. If he had a master plan to take over the town, his drive to do so seemed to have waned. And that wasn't the only adjustment he made. During this period, he changed his name to Avraham Cohen. No one had a clear understanding of why, but it's possible he wanted to get away from prior legal troubles. But his name change did nothing to change CIST's circumstances. Their debts continued to pile up, and so did their scandals. In 2008, a couple by the name of Dan and Shushani Ashman got divorced after Shushani left the group and Dan wanted to stay. They had two toddlers together. Dan wanted joint custody and planned on taking his children to Rama's meetings, but Shushani wouldn't allow that. She sought full custody and brought two former CIST members to testify about how bad things could get in the group. One of the witnesses testified that Rama ordered the children to do intense physical labor and to kneel for four hours. Once, the witness alleged, a child grew tired of that position and stretched his legs. Rama erupted when he saw that. For punishment, the witness testified that he ordered dozens of the children to circle the boy and spit on him. This reportedly happened to more than one kid. It was yet another horrifying allegation of abuse, but Dan Ashman wasn't deterred. He brought forward other witnesses who had also grown up in CIST and had completely different experiences. A mother and former member named Miriam Fayes testified that she'd never seen Rama do anything abusive. She said she even allowed her son to travel with her ex-husband to Rama's weekend meetings. In the end, the judge made his ruling and gave Shoshani full custody of her children. However, he also noted that all of the witnesses, regardless of their testimonies, were, quote, sincere, articulate, intelligent, and generally highly accomplished individuals. 
Based on that, the judge told Shoshani that her children may very well derive some benefit from the teaching or the community support of the group. After all the stories of alleged abuse, it might seem shocking that some people claim to have had positive experiences in CIST. It makes it seem all the more difficult to determine who's telling the truth. For example, in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, sociologist John R. Hall explained that people who leave a cult may become overly critical of it in hindsight and claim that they were brainwashed. They do this in order to deal with their regret about the years they spent as followers. This is not to say, however, that the abuse in CIST or other groups like it did not take place. In the same article in the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, J. Gordon Melton, a religion scholar, believes that stories of alleged abuse in CIST likely did happen. He said, quote, If you've got one person coming out, that's one thing. If you've got 10 people, that raises the veracity of the charge. Melton continued to say, I've found that over the years, that when you've got two kinds of absolute things, something in the middle really occurred. In a group that once held up to 3,000 people, everyone had a different experience. Some CIST members weren't as involved as others and may not have witnessed any abuse. Despite the questions about what went on, one thing remained certain. The little goodwill Rama had earned with his racetrack had completely vanished. And on top of that, his money issues kept piling up. In 2008, it became clear that the group had overspent and borrowed way too much. Creditors for several of the gas stations and two apartment buildings said CIS loans were in default. But instead of scaling back, 68-year-old Rama had an entirely different idea. Perhaps he'd find another way to silence everyone who gave him trouble. Over the years, CIST had been in contact with Bob Cameron, a Canadian business owner who sold them high-end go-karts for their racetrack. According to Cameron, CIST still owed him $100,000, but refused to pay it. Cameron wasn't sure how he'd get it all back until the fall of 2008. That year, he learned that CIST needed help obtaining loans. Their debts probably meant the banks wouldn't give them any more money. Cameron said he met with key members of CIST. He told them he could help them get their money. In truth, he didn't want to help them. He just figured they would pay for his assistance and he could swindle them out of the money they owed him for the go-karts. According to Cameron, who spoke with CBS News' investigative reporter Amin Katayan in December of 2008, the conversation began to shift away from the loan to helping CIST with something else, what they called their political problems. Cameron said yes, he could help. He told them he had an Italian wife, suggesting that he had ties to the mafia, but he may or may not have understood what CIST wanted. Regardless, he saw it as a chance to get his money. In late October 2008, Cameron says that CIST sent him a list with 60 names on it of Shano residents and officials, including the mayor, Lorna Marquardt. Receiving that list made Cameron grasp the reality of the situation. He warned the sheriff's office and provided extensive documentation of his dealings with Rama's organization on October 30th. But this was more than a small town crime. It was closer to feeling like domestic terrorism. And that meant the FBI and Royal Canadian Mounted Police had to get involved. In the first week of November, federal authorities warned everyone on the list that they were the targets of a quote, implied threat. 
After ensuring everyone had been warned, they went after CIST, but they struggled to learn the truth of the matter. It seems that none of the papers Cameron provided could fully incriminate someone from CIST. As a result, the investigation stalled. It continued through the end of the year and completely altered the once-friendly town. Those named in the list were on edge, and some even purchased guns. CBS News reported that Lorna Marcourt, the mayor, canceled her open-door policy for meetings. She also refused to participate in the town's annual holiday parade for fear of an assassination attempt. Yet despite all the fear and rumors circulating in the small town, no arrests were made. Once again, Sist and Rama got off scot-free. But that wasn't the end. Just one year later, Sist was connected to another act of violence. Coming up, police find a CIST member within inches of her life. Now, back to the story. From the late 1990s through 2008, the Samantha Roy Institute of Science and Technology, otherwise known as CIST, bought dozens of properties throughout Shawna, Wisconsin. Its leader, Ramachandra Samantha Roy, who at this point went by the name Avraham Cohen, invested in everything from storefronts and undeveloped parcels of land to an amusement park at a multi-million dollar racetrack. It was an odd plan for a cult, but the 68-year-old leader claimed to know what he was doing. He said CIST's profits would fund their educational initiatives, but as far as anyone could tell, in the 12 years since their announcement of the school, the organization wasn't doing any educating. It seemed like something more sinister was afoot. Yet Rama's allegedly secret schemes fell short. By 2009, CIST had overreached. Creditors for their gas stations, two apartment buildings, and racetrack had declared their loans in default. Beginning in March 2009, CIST filed several Chapter 11 bankruptcies. Under federal law, that allowed CIST to retain and operate its businesses. They just had to propose a plan to reorganize their companies and pay the people they owed over time. Altogether, they owed their debtors around $4 million. According to CIST leadership, however, the group's troubles weren't the result of overspending or any other mismanagement. The spokesperson claimed that Shano's media coverage had smeared their reputation. As a result, that discouraged potential investors from pouring capital into CIS enterprises and dissuaded customers from showing up. But those claims didn't win the group any sympathy. In 2010, a judge put CIS's prized racetrack and amusement park on receivership. That meant a third party would reorganize the business into something profitable. And while CIST steadily lost its assets, Rama wasn't around to fight for it. The 70-year-old preacher spent much of his time at home in Baltimore, Maryland. But that house wasn't much different from his first one. It may have been another place of torture and abuse. On Tuesday, June 18th, Baltimore police found an 18-year-old woman named Carmela Goldstein bleeding in the driveway of a suburban home. Two female CIST members stood over her, one of whom was Rama's 43-year-old daughter and a physician named Rivka Roy. Paramedics rushed Goldstein to the hospital, and Rivka accompanied her in the vehicle. While authorities asked Rivka about Goldstein's condition, she only told them Goldstein's name and date of birth. She didn't tell them how Goldstein had been injured. She grew agitated at the questions and even demanded a lawyer, according to the Green Bay Press Gazette. 
Upon arriving at the hospital, doctors examined the full extent of Goldstein's injuries. She suffered damage to one eye and to her genital region, and also had a punctured lung and a broken leg, pelvis, and ribs. The extent of her injuries raised suspicions that she had been assaulted. Doctors immediately began surgery and feared for the worst. While doctors fought to save the teen, police were back at the house trying to figure out what had happened. As they investigated, the authorities spotted someone moving inside the home and demanded they come out. After an hour of waiting, a man named Manasseh Goldberger emerged. When he exited the house, officers noted that he walked with a limp and his body was covered in scratches. He'd said he'd been too scared to talk at first. Manasseh explained that he and Goldstein were moving stuff out of a trailer when she tripped and fell face first on the ground. But when the police went outside, they found a large sheet of stone and paper towels covered in blood. Manasseh was taken into custody. Meanwhile, at the hospital, Goldstein had miraculously survived her operation. When she regained consciousness, she told police that the granite had fallen on top of her while she and Goldberger were moving it. She insisted that the entire event was an accident. Even though they may have had suspicions about what happened, law enforcement was forced to conclude that Goldstein's injuries were accidental. Manasseh and Rivka didn't face any charges. Even though Rama wasn't involved at the time of the incident, it served as another blemish on Sist's reputation. And if authorities had found enough evidence to begin an investigation, there's no telling what they could have uncovered. Around this time, Rama continued to hide from public life, letting his lawyers and other members of Sist's leadership deal with the group's problems. And there were a lot of problems. Between March 2009 and March 2011, SIST filed nine separate Chapter 11 bankruptcies across four states to deal with their property debts. Some of these were dismissed, and one was turned into a Chapter 7 liquidation. That allowed creditors to repossess a handful of SIST's assets, including several of their gas stations. Over the years that followed, SIST continued to lose properties. The group had once been worth over $10 million, but the steady stream of lawsuits and debts had eaten away at their riches. In 2012, their racetrack and amusement park were sold in a foreclosure sale for $2 million. Then in 2013, a jury found CIS former CFO, Kalmar Grunfel, guilty of tax evasion. Around that time, Rama was sued for cheating creditors, and a year later, his wife passed away at the age of 85. By that point, CIST seemed on its last legs. There are no clear numbers on how many members remained, but many of Rama's most devout followers had already left. They either got sick of Rama's dogmatic preaching or realized all their financial support would leave them broke. Yet even amid these heavy losses, CIST refused to fade away completely, some disciples remained loyal. In 2017, the group entered negotiations with the Shano Redevelopment Authority, or RDA. The government office had inspected some of CIS buildings and found they were structurally unsound. They negotiated with CIST about purchasing the property, but the negotiations didn't go anywhere. By 2018, it seems the purchase offer was off the table and the RDA filed a petition to condemn the buildings. 
Surprisingly, cysts didn't react the way they had previously. It appeared that Rama wasn't nearly as assertive as he used to be. We don't know what he thought about the situation, but he'd lost so much over the years. His daughter, wife, and many of his followers. Perhaps that had taken a heavy toll. After two years of complications with cysts and their debtors, the town of Shano finally acquired some of the group's properties. And that may have been the end of Sist. Over the years, Shano slowly regained the ground it had lost. Sist no longer dominated the town, and Rama seemed to stay at his home in Baltimore. Ultimately, after years of abuse, pain, and trauma, the town and the cult's ex-members began to heal. Rama may have once sought international fame and renown, but by 2021, the 81-year-old man became nothing more than a footnote in Shano's history. Thanks again for tuning into Cults. We'll be back next Tuesday with a new episode. You can find all episodes of Cults and all other Spotify originals from Parcast for free on Spotify. Among the many sources we used, we found Rick Rommel's article, Followers Put Their Faith in His Hands, from the Milwaukee Journal Sentinel, extremely helpful to our research. We'll see you next time. Cults is a Spotify original from Parcast. It is executive produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Juan Borda, with production assistance by Ron Shapiro, Trent Williamson, Carly Madden, and Aaron Larson. This episode of Cults was written by Rob Heckert, with writing assistance by Robert Tyler Walker and Giles Hofseth, fact-checking by Claire Cronin, and research by Brian Petrus and Chelsea Wood. Cults stars Greg Polson and Vanessa Richardson. Hi, I'm Shelby Scott, host of Mediums, a new Spotify original from Parcast. You can join me Wednesdays as I dive into the world of spiritualism and the women that defined it. We'll explore everything from obvious con artists to 150-year-old mysteries. It'll be a fascinating journey, so be sure to follow my new podcast, Mediums, free and only on Spotify. Spotify.